0: Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?
1: Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we'd like to discuss with you uh, Exodus chapters 16 and 17. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says. No more and no less. We want to make sure that we are showing ourselves to be uh useful in god's kingdom in uh communicating and promoting the importance of god's word and so uh we hope that that's what you find as you find this podcast before we do start we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us you can find us on facebook if you search at walking through the book you can also email us walking through the book at protonmail.com is that email and uh, of course we have uh uh, Jeremy Hodges and uh, Bryant Bales with us today. And so, Jeremy, how have things been going with you, man?
0: Things have been going really great. Uh, we started the the new year. We started a new set of sermons. Um, I'm excited about a lot of those that are going on. Started a new set of classes. Uh, and our Wednesday night class, we're doing overview of the Bible, uh, the Bible specifically in the first semester. We'll be doing an uh, overview of the Old Testament. And then we're also starting over in Genesis uh, one of the things that we had wanted to do this year with Wildercroft was get on a rotating Bible schedule so that we knew kind of when we were going to go through the entirety of the Bible. So kind of like this podcast is trying to do is go through the Bible step by step and you know, walk through the book. Uh, so we got it set up so we've got a seven-year rotating schedule for our Bible classes. Uh, I worked hard for a five-year, uh, but one of our elders, he... He wanted a few more. He wanted a few more classes in there, and so we extended it to seven years. I'm very thankful to be able to work with some elders who want more Bible classes. So we're really excited about that. that and great. what's uh, what's y'all's website? That would be Wildercroft Church of Christ. Uh, well, actually, I think it's wildercroftcoc.org. Uh, Wildercroft is W I L D E R C R O F T. Wildercroft. Wildercroft. And yeah, that some will be in the. Uh, Go ahead. I think some people say Wildercroft, but uh I'm not sure which one's
1: right. I just kinda of say both. Oh, that's how we, that's how we'd say it in Mississippi totally. Wildercroft. Yeah,
0: well well not only Wildercroft, I've got a, a friend who I love very much. He refers to
1: us as Buck Wildercroft because uh because he's just hey. like that. All right. Um Bryant, um how are things been going over in
2: uh Savannah? very well. So I, uh, got married at the, uh, beginning of December what? and we've been settling in and, uh, like Jeremy said, a lot going on at the congregation with, uh, the new year, um, in Savannah. And so things have, things have been going really well. It's been a lot of change, a lot of adjustments, but, um, really been able to reflect on God's grace and, uh, really just his work, um, with, a. Uh, Um, new perspective through all of this so it's been it's been good
0: i assume then you got scads of students Eh? Eh? (laughs) unfortunately not if only we had students from scad yeah you can get that one out of the final please (laughs) Oh, okay is that a request no i'm not I i was being funny but it's been it's been a joke i've I've been thinking about for a while now, like every time we think about (laughs) Brian's work, I was like, there's a SCAD joke in there somewhere. I've got to see if I can make that one. Yeah.
2: The SCAD presence in Savannah is so cool. love the fact that that
1: college is here. And and, and your website is strivingforthefaith.com still, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's .com or .org. I think we have both of those uh, URLs or domains. Um, And it's a, it's a newish website. So we're uploading our sermons. Um, fairly regularly on there. So if you'd want to check out the address and information for the congregation, you can check us out
1: there. Okay, great. Um, Brian, by the way, um, you want to go through sort of the flow of the program and talk about uh, what we're going to be doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the purpose of walking through the book, when
2: Stephen brought this idea up to me initially, um, you know, the goal was to have an ongoing podcast where we're keeping it as simple as possible, just reading scripture from the beginning and just really having a conversation through it, but having a format that makes it easy for us to have that conversation um, in in a way that's outlined and uh, keeps the simplicity more focused. Um, So we're going to read through Exodus 16 and 17, and then after that, make some initial observations. And really what we're doing is just looking at the reading itself and anything that might seem particularly significant or maybe some things we just really haven't noticed before. And then after that, we'll look at themes and that'll be more looking at how uh, the text maybe relates more to the overall book of Exodus or back to Genesis. Maybe things that relate to the overall uh, context of the Old Testament um, or ways that we see that things have a fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ and the church. And we always conclude trying to find ways that we can make things more practically relevant by making some applications, and that might not always be an application. That might be something you can apply, you know, the very day you read this. But maybe just principles or ideas, or just attitudes that you can begin to um, see have some kind of um, application from from the text. of the New American Standard. Exodus chapter 16. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. "'Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. "'You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent.' "'The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some little. "'When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, "'and he who had gathered little had no lack. "'Every man gathered as much as he should eat. "'Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning.' But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat,
0: but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observant, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over, and all that is left over, put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses has ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, "Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none." It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept before... Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land, and they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah.
1: Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. And take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim and Moses said to Joshua choose some men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand Amalek prevailed but Moses' hands became heavy So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. like to connect yep
0: there's a lot going well, on here
1: I'll say like first of all though like I don't know what the Amalekites did I do but uh, specifically but okay go ahead
0: in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses
1: 17 through 19
0: Ooh. it actually says what they did uh, in Deuteronomy 25 starting in verse 17 remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So he gave them a to-do list functionally. He says that when you get to Canaan, everything's good. You make sure you don't let those people live. And specifically because what they had done was uh, you've got a traveling nation between two and three million people and they're just hanging out at the back and picking off the sick in the week. Right.
2: By the way, this m- random, random side note, but uh, wasn't Haman descended from the Amalekites?
0: Where am I wrong about that? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it, 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 it. There's a there's a discussion about that. It seems kind of improbable. There's some okay. similarity of language. There's some of our Jewish friends will maintain that he was descended from Amalek. Um, I don't know if I buy that necessarily, but okay. it's a theory. Cause I know I've at
2: least heard that before, and I, I remember it had been a while since I have heard that, so I wasn't I wasn't sure because I, I remember Haman well, was. It's, a, it,
0: it's Jewish myth. It, it's Jewish mythology. Got it. I, okay. I mean, whether it holds up, yeah, or not. Um, is sort of a question.
2: So, as far as I don't know
0: either way for sure.
2: As far as initial observations on the text, one thing that I had not noticed before was how much it's repeated that God heard their grumblings. It's like four times in a very short amount of text. Uh, I think starting in verse uh, seven, um, and then it's in verse eight. And it's in verse nine. It's in verse twelve. So it's just said over and over and over again that God heard their grumblings. And it's it's like one verse after another, within like six verses that it says that.
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's kind of a. I'll oh, go ahead, Stephen. I was just saying. I wonder if I wonder if there's a lesson there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is totally a lesson there.
0: Yeah. Um. Actually, James makes the James makes that um point. He talks about them murmuring and grumbling. Mm. He says, don't grumble against one another because he hears. That's Because he's right at the door. That is So great. James actually does make specific application of that. Yeah, we'll need to come back to that because that is a great, great application.
1: You know, one thing I, that I noticed too, and I, I guess I just hadn't really considered in this, in this vein, but sort of a question out of chapter 16, verse 18. When they measured by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack is that providential or should we just read that as just, well, you know, this is all I need. So Paul, and because uh, Paul yeah. in
0: second Corinthians says it's providential.
1: Yeah. Well, he,
0: because second Corinthians, um, is it eight or nine? It's, uh, it's in second Corinthians. It's in top. It's nine. Um, and I think is nine. I think,
2: uh, in chapter nine, it seems like it's talking also about deliberate sharing though. Um, and it seems like yes. he's talking. To, I mean, he's telling to the Corinthians that they need to be generous because God has given some much so that they can give to those who have no lack. And then he brings up that reference from Exodus: those who had little had no lack, and those who had much didn't have um, too much. Um, and so, I get the idea that Israel maybe was learning to share with each other in this. That providentially there was more than enough for everybody but the way it worked out was some some did get a lot while some needed more given to them by those who had gathered a lot um and i could be seeing something that's not there but it seems like paul's inferring from the quotation in second corinthians that there was some sharing that was going on as it's an like, example
0: yeah it's in eight not nine but it know what's, what's interesting in that it's in eight yeah because the the second quotation is in nine Talking about scattering abroad and give to the poor, but um, uh, but the quotation because uh, it's a two chapter discussion about yeah. giving. But in fifteen, it's in eight fifteen is when he says there it. There it is. Yep. And what's neat is he's got two, he's got two things going on. A about providential uh, giving so you can share, but the other part is that he takes care of the people who share. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Prov- providence is at the front end, and providence is at the back end. Right. He's like, well, God takes care of this. God's the one who makes sure you have enough. So get Sharon. Yeah.
2: I was just going to say I'm I'm struck by the simplicity of a lot of the lessons that are here. You know, like God just took them out of Egypt. He did incredible miracles. And, you know, we're obviously working towards Mount Sinai, which is just going to be another massive kind of event. And yet there's this intimacy in all of this, you know, like they're they're hungry. So he gives them this little manna stuff and he's trying to teach them to share with each other. And he's noticing they're grumbling and, you know, the, the water coming out of the rock, you know, is, is, is really epic. And, you know, the new Testament mentions that, you know, that water was, you know, a massive amount of water, which it would have needed to be, but still like, you know, there's just this intimacy that God hears what they're saying and God is providing for their simplest necessities but God is doing it in a way to help their hearts in just little ways to grow and to mature. Um, it really, it really does seem like everything kind of slows down to emphasize that God really is dealing with Israel like a parent with an infant. You know that they really are almost like born again here and needing to learn quiet lessons of infancy.
1: It's it's very similar in feel in my opinion, it's very similar in feel to Leviticus Mm. in a sense where there are these big things going on and there's progress to be made. But right now we're going to slow down. We're going to take some time to to look at some things. And, uh, you know, this is almost like, I mean, again, this is, this is, this is an infant in his mother's arms. Like there's just some very simple things going on right now. And, uh, I mean, that's just, I mean, how I pictured it in my mm-hmm. mind. And, uh, but, but I think you're, I think you're spot on. It's just that they're flailing almost immediately and just, you know, uh, almost completely helpless. And I think, I think the Lord is having a lot of compassion. on yeah, them, Like from the get go, He is not, you know, cause like, I mean, even just with the, with the, complaining and the whining, I mean, how easy would it be for God to say, okay, 50 of you are gone right now? Yeah. And, you know, know, but in his compassion, he, he withholds that and he deals with them gently. Well, okay. Dealing with them gently. There's also
0: at the same time, he is intentionally teaching them lessons because, okay, you cannot worry about more than today. Mm. He won't let them You cannot store this stuff. It literally doesn't last, except for the day that I tell you it does. Okay? So, I'm going to give you food, and you'll be able to have the food. It only lasts for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. On the last day of the week, you get... uh, uh, No, not the last day, but the next last day of the week, the penultimate day, he says, you gather twice as much, because tomorrow there won't be any. Now, that... That's an interesting like, set of situations. First of all, you're not going to be able to save up my blessings. Tomorrow, it's just going to be gone. Right. Today, on this last day, you gather twice as much because tomorrow there won't be any. And so he is teaching them every day. You have to listen to everything I mm. say, which is the point that he makes in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when he says, He humbled you and let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, of course, Jesus quotes that in Matthew chapter four, when he's talking about hunger, he's talking about bread, but he's also talking about making sure that he is totally connected with God's will. So this chapter... Uh, has far-reaching implications when it comes to understanding the nature of God and His dealings with His people, uh, even to the point of what Jesus understood. Right. Yeah. The other the other thing is you know the Sabbath stuff. Um, on Sunday, I was uh, able to talk about some of the the wrong sl- and slanderous accusations that are brought against Jesus' disciples uh, because they were picking the yeah, heads yeah. of the grain in the field, and they said, "Well, you're breaking the Sabbath," and of course, the rest of the law. If you read it carefully you can see that there's definitely a difference between gathering not allowed and eating in the field right. yes allowed yeah. and so you have a wrong application of the law trying to um slander the disciples but it is gathering here that is forbidden right you're not allowed to do anything where you pick it up and you save it for right. tomorrow right yeah he says you're not allowed to gather so it's kind of a diff- it's kind of a different deal yeah. and so their misunderstanding of the sabbath rules led to
1: led to that problem yeah that's a great thought well and, and I mean just like what y'all are talking about here gather according to your need like that's a I mean there's a lesson in that as well <laughs> that in this country we need to heed um, Big time. you mean uh, co- there's,
0: no co- there's no Costco you can't buy like <laughs> you can't buy 17 pounds of peanut butter
1: pallets can I get like 5 pallets of peanut butter um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll get the big one. I'll get the tub, the tub, man, I've got the room in my eight bedroom house. Um, no, uh, yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating. You know what you see, you know, this is, this is ultimately something that God is mm-hmm. intending. He's bringing it about, but he's, he's regulating it at the same time. Um, and, and, and teaching them in this way. Um, what's interesting to me too though is that um you know water uh having a sense of water or the promise of water really in chapter 17 um again more complaining right and i think verse 2 kind of as we focused on this sort of our focus verse or the the verse we started the the podcast with the episode with um You know, the question, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Uh, Moses, is Moses feeling, I mean, of course, his sense is he's allying with God, sometimes seemingly in hostility or against the people. Because it's like, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And what that really means is they're testing God. And there's a couple of ways to test people, right? You, You can test someone hoping that they succeed and that they go through that test and they, they do it well. Right. I mean, sometimes you'll test your children that way. Let's see what they do with this. Not that you're manipulating them, but that you're, you're, you're wanting them to succeed. But there's another way to test. And there's a way to test that basically says, well, you know, just like the last verse in chapter 17, uh, excuse me, the last, excuse me, the last verse in that section in, uh, in verse seven, you know, is the Lord among us or not? Um, that's the kind of testing that, that, you know, you're just kind of throwing it out there. You're not really hoping that he succeeds in that test, but, uh, I don't know. What do you, what do y'all think about that in terms of Moses sort of allying himself with God against the people? It doesn't
0: go well for him the next time this comes up. Mm. Yeah. With the Mm -hmm. water in numbers, I think it's numbers 20. Yes. Yeah. So you have some, some strong similarities between the things that happen here and what happens yeah. in numbers. And that's kind of intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, that's the root of that strange phrase in First Corinthians 10, when he says the rock that followed, because there's two occasions in which there is water from the rock. And so you have sort of a... Uh, uh, a spiritual application that Paul seems to make in first Corinthians 10 he says Christ was the rock that followed them which again is weird it's kind of a weird thing to say obviously the rock didn't follow them I mean not in the literal sense but the fact that you have two different occasions in which water is provided from them for them from the rock and so the the spiritual application that Paul makes in first Corinthians 10 that, that is a it is a foreshadowing of Christ but um, uh, this, this interesting thing that, that Moses says, look, I, this is not about me. You guys think you're fighting with me, but you're not fighting mm-hmm. with me because you're fighting with God. Mm-hmm. I think anybody, anyone who's dealt with, um, anything, anyone who's dealt with tough things in a church, maybe there was a, a wayward member. Maybe there was somebody who was perpetually, uh, rebellious or we, we've, dealt with hard situations as an evangelist or working with a congregation this this is really mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. With, I, I i still really hear moses you know you're fighting with me but it's right. not me you think you're fighting with me and you're not the problem is you got a problem with god right. and you're gonna have to square that with him yeah i think that's a great thought
1: oh but jeremy that's just your opinion
0: well, that would be easier for them to say about Moses, but Moses uh, obviously is vindicated in this well, case. But
1: you know that that, that goes back to chapter mm-hmm. sixteen mm-hmm. too, because and, uh, the the glory of the Lord appeared to them in the cloud. So they they can see these things happening, right? I mean, they see what's going on.
0: Well, he says that's so, what he seems says,
1: so absurd to us.
0: He said, "You," he says, "You shall know that I am mm-hmm. the Lord." He literally just brought them through. The Red Sea. He literally just defeated the entirety of Egypt with his miracles. I mean, the plagues were a demonstration of his power. Uh, It would be impossible. I mean, they saw the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. They've seen all of these miracles happen. And yet they're here saying, but can he really feed us? I mean, I mean, because... I mean really? Can, can he really take care of us?
1: What have you done for me lately? Oh man! Oh, oh. and that's so <laughs> that's so human. That's yeah. so us. Yeah. So
2: there's there's one one more thing that um, I hadn't noticed before quite so much in verse three when they say, "Would that we had died by the Lord's hand oh, in the yes. land of Egypt." That really hit me when I was reading that. Uh, What do you guys think of that? Because it seems like they're saying, like, we wish. It's almost like they're envying the Egyptians that God had actually struck and killed in Egypt.
0: Yeah. Well, at the same time, it's a little bit of a dramatic statement, too. This is a very tack hand on forehead, kind of like, oh, if only we had died in Egypt. Shut up. (laughs) Come on, man. I mean, you're we uh, were we invited to read this and go, guys. Seriously, that's the way that you're going to mm-hmm. attack this. Oh, if only I had died in Egypt. Come on.
1: Well, again, it's it's like children being overly dramatic, and you're just kind of like, please come on. Exactly. You know. And, yeah. And uh, it just seems but, like it's uh, you know it's I, like directly
2: mocking. It's like provoking God deliberately you know, like saying like god
0: you should have just killed well that's us. what the testing that's exactly yeah. what they're saying i mean that's exactly how it's yeah. supposed to sound which is where the right. testing comes in yeah. that's that's the kind of attitude of testing that we're, right. that we're talking about it's this it's this i'm going to push god with my <laughs> dumbo statements so that he'll do what yes, i want i'm the
2: one who's really in so control yeah. by being overly right. dramatic yeah. that that's I've seen
1: that. Which, yeah. which I'm glad that I'm glad that I'm glad I wasn't God at that time. Cause I was like, Oh, you, you're worried about me killing you then. Watch <laughs> yeah. what I'm about to do. Okay, no, <laughs> Whoop, and I've, I've run into that <laughs> yeah. as well
2: with, um, people that you may try to help physically, like, and when you're, you're, you're trying to help yeah. them and they know you're a Christian. Sometimes people will say things when you're trying to act in their best interest and pull back on not physically helping, but just trying to help them know God. Or even at the onset, yep. you say, "Look, that's really not what this is all about. We really need to find the true food, which is from God's teaching." And sometimes people say things to try to put themselves in a position of control. Um, like I, I've, yep, no, I've just, I've just run into that many times. I won't go further into that, but you know, I, I think it is interesting how this
0: can be no, imitated in right. similar ways. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I wanted to, to notice—it's really fascinating about this—is. It is a reminder that the Hebrew narratives are not written in purely chronological order. And if you want a good reminder of that, they take this portion of the manna Mm -hmm. and they put it, it says, before the testimony to be kept. There's no ark of the testimony. Not for a while. (laughs) There's no Ten Commandments yet. It tells us something that happens later, and it associates it with this this thing that doesn't exist yet in the narrative. And so you come across, place it before the testimony, and it doesn't explain that. So if this is your first read-through, you're like, place it before the what now? Now he explains that later on. I mean, you're going to see exactly what happens, but right here you don't have that. Right. So I find it a fascinating sort of a thing. He is writing this with the knowledge that the people who are reading this have because of later events. The right. first people, and, yeah, yeah, the first people to read this were people who knew exactly
1: what the testimony meant. Precisely, and, and that's that's where context con- context comes into play. You know, and you realize, okay, yeah, what's his audience? Who's he writing to? And, and so much of the criticism that has been leveled against these uh, first five books of the Bible uh, really is answered by that, in my opinion. Um, you know, you have places, uh, you know, in Genesis that are called by names that would have been current to Moses' generation. And so that's, you know, anyway, yeah, what, what you're saying is spot on. Oh. This together with the bigger picture of the bible you know i just want to start really with john 6 where jesus says john 6 and verse 30 it says therefore they said to him what sign will you perform then who may see it and believe you what work will you do our fathers ate the man in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat then jesus said to them most assuredly i say to you moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bre- bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Well, what's fascinating about that passage is that he it's still the same thing as what we just read about. You've seen him, and yet you don't believe. You've received, yet you're not thankful, um, and that's that's kind of you know the ongoing theme of the Hebrews uh, all throughout Scripture. But uh, one, one of the things you
0: were you, one of the things that you had pointed out is how many times the event. So it's not just the event, the manna event, the manna idea, the the how it shows up in Exodus, how it shows up in Numbers, how it shows up throughout the Psalms how it shows up in the new Testament. This is sort of a perpetual uh, reminder for the people that it's not just about your bellies. It's not just about eating something and not being hungry anymore. This is about God's providence. This is about loyalty to him. This is about making sure that you're listening to the things that he says the fact that the Sabbath is connected to this is interesting too yeah. because you have the idea of providence. People forget that there's a connection between providence and Sabbath but absolutely, I, I think that the, that the narrative here reminds us that the entirety of the Sabbath thing was about remembering God's providence mm-hmm. when you're not working with your own hands. Right. We become so obsessed and uh, reliant on our own hand as far as making for, do for ourselves. We forget that God is the one who makes do for us. But um, so all, all that to say the the John 6 reminder is sort of the cap on an entire history of the nationwide
1: failure to learn the lesson of the manna. Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. And, and even in that scope, you know, Jesus still feeds the people in the wilderness, you know, in, in an amazing way.
0: And then they turn around and say, what sign do you do?
1: Yeah, and even, even his disciples don't get it. His disciples have a hardened heart about it. I don't know if that's because they had a particular plan and he kind of said, no, you give them something to eat. Maybe that's maybe that's why their hearts were hardened, but, but the whole point is that they're not getting it. His disciples aren't getting it. The people have no, you know, I mean, in John 6 they're following him and saying, hey, you know, give us some more food. And it's like you know, you, that's not the point of this whole thing. So I, I think what you're saying is spot on. Yeah, and I think the
2: the manna being put in the Ark of the Covenant shows the idea of the sense of permanence that the manna and the ideas of the manna were meant to have. And it reminds me, too, of John 4 when Jesus says that his food is to do the will of him who had sent him. Um I think like it it really shows the people continuing to complain. They weren't actually doing what was represented with God's work. And because they weren't doing it, their hearts weren't being changed. And I think that's what Jesus was urging his disciples continuously. um, Because he would often say, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. And in John 7, Jesus says, uh, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether or not it is from God
0: not only that, okay, you said permanence, but there's a sort of an irony in the Hebrews passage. The Hebrew writer seems to be making a little bit of a kind of a poke at, um, at his Jewish readers because he talks about the things that are in the ark, and he includes the manna mm-hmm. in that. Uh, but by the time that he writes that, there's no more ark. Right. It doesn't exist by that time. They don't, they don't know where it is. It disappears from history after Nebuchadnezzar. You have a temple but you don't have an ark. So he is talking about the the, the, ark, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And he specifically says, yes, but that's not around anymore. Now, whether or not, however, you want to date Hebrews, I do not believe the Hebrews was written after the destruction of the temple. Um, but either way, he says, look, and, and honestly, we can't speak knowledgeably about the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because it's gone, man. And so I just find that sort of interesting that the permanence is the idea behind it, which is what you just said, but the thing itself isn't
2: permanent. Yes. It's not about the object, but it's what it's ultimately pointing to, which is like the Ark of the Covenant itself and the tabernacle. You know, all of those things were meant to point point the people to the things of the spirit, the greater things that brought you into God's presence and connected you with him.
1: And there's, there are great lessons in this in the sense that like, this is not about showing others the miracle. I mean, I I don't know, maybe I'm reaching here, but I mean, it's not like the Israelites were told, you know, show the other nations, you know, how I'm feeding you. Um, and and I guess it's just similar today where people are like, well, we, we need miracles, you know, the argument is made that we need miracles so that people can believe, you know, some people, you know, won't believe as easy as others. And, you know of course that makes no logical sense because um, these people had the miracle right, and they didn't believe right precisely precisely and so but 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 i think you know what you all are saying and really what we're seeing here is that the eternal principles are still there um you know what's fascinating too you know we we see this resistance with the water and of course there's you know uh, the statement, I think, Jesus makes at the feast in John concerning he who comes to me shall never hunger." Yeah, it's thirst. the next
0: chapter. Yeah, it's the next chapter. It's in chapter 7. Yeah, so you've yeah. got the stuff about the bread in chapter 6, and then you get the snippet about the water in chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Not an accident. Right.
1: Yeah, I think it's verse, uh, yeah, verse 35 in chapter 6. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst and I, it's a fascinating order to that and again harkening back i think to this particular section of exodus one of the things that it seems like the psalmists really reflected on the psalmists would look
2: back on the exodus especially so where the manna is mentioned in the third book of the psalms uh it seems like they would see the work of god in the exodus and they understood how god was revealing permanent spiritual truths that connected more to the individual and that the things that God does physically, because God is faithful, because God is spirit, those hold permanent spiritual truths. And so if God was raining down Mm -hmm. physical manna, then there's some kind of spiritual truth that remains perpetually true in that. If God brought water from the rock for the people once, there's a Permanent perpetual lesson found in that that's meant to be personally understood and applied in any generation because what God does once in his eternal character He is always willing to do but what he does once and then withholds it shows even more clearly that what's being withheld In the future with what he did once is meant to be given in a greater way So kind of like Lazarus Jesus didn't continue to raise everybody from the dead, but what Jesus did once with Lazarus he rose other people from the dead, of course, but there's a sense where that was meant to reveal something perpetually true about the power of Jesus that all people could
0: access and apply. Like it says in John chapter 7, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Mm. He who believes yeah. in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living <clears throat> water. Yeah, really good. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive right. for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Right. So back to what Stephen was saying, he positions himself as the eternal spiritual bread yeah, in chapter right. six. He turns right around and tell them tells them that he is the spring of living water in chapter seven. So all of these things are some physical things that come true in Jesus that have to do with a spiritual reality that, that is eternal, like you're saying.
1: Yeah. Yep you know, contention, tempting, testing, you know, there were people that tested Jesus. Hmm. Uh, we see that many times, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees tested Jesus with the hope that he would fail these tests, that he would expose himself as the fraud that they wanted him to be. Um, and, and, and of course that goes on today when we tempt and test God. Well, you know, uh, I know that God wants me to do this, but I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And, you know, I'm just going to have faith that God is just going to take care of that in his grace. Um, that's, that's very much testing God. And I know I'm getting more into application there, but, um, I mean, I think that tempting at testing, I mean, that goes all throughout scripture of man testing God in ways that he wants God to fail. And maybe I'm phrasing that the wrong way, but that's just, that's the way it comes across very often. Well,
0: okay. I- I, I do want to say that there's one. Uh, I know there's another way to look at this that I just want to be you know, kind of careful about. Um, I I don't want to ignore the idea that God does have another side of this, where He invites the people to test Him. Mm-hmm. Um, he specifically said He wants them to test Him when it comes to giving back to Him.
1: Right, Malachi. Yes,
0: it, absolutely in Malachi, and so in in Malachi he specifically says uh in cha- in chapter three and verse ten, he says, "Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, mm-hmm. if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. well, okay, I want to think about the bit of irony here is that the people were not told they were told not to test him. And testing him is when the problems happen. They tested him by the waters of Meribah. that um, shows up even in the Psalms in the recounting of their failure in that. But it's not believing him. Mm-hmm. They tested him when they didn't believe him. When we are not giving God his due, we're not testing him. But in the wrong mm-hmm. way. We're not trusting him to do those things. Mm -hmm. We're not doing our part with the belief that he will do his. And so testing him is sort of an interesting idea. There's a wrong way to test. That is out of disbelief and trying to manipulate God and have him on a stick. Yeah, I think like... And there's a way that we need... I'm sorry. I I thought you might have been done there,
2: Jeremy. Keep going.
0: No, no. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to
2: say that I think like a way to think about that is faith in God always deliberately puts us in a position of vulnerability. And I think faith embraces that vulnerability and recognizes that without God fulfilling his promises, we're going to go up in flames in that position. And we recognize that God will fulfill his promises, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that we're vulnerable in that position. While a lack of faith despises that vulnerability. And when you're put into that position, you immediately get weary or detest it, or embittered against God. And so really it's, it's a matter of what am I going to do when God's command and God's way leads me into a position of vulnerability? Will I continue to press on in the faith that God is going to fulfill his promises? And I may not see how that's going to happen, but even if I see that I'm going to be damaged deeply if God doesn't fulfill his part, I'll still go on. Or when I begin to be pressed in that way, will I pull back, and will I despise God for putting me in that position in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the difficulty we face, right? It's like uh, either I'm going to, uh, as they say, man up and, and face the situation head on, uh, you know, I think, I think there are times where we can think that we can just push through and just not have to worry about it. I I think that's maybe the, the other swing of the pendulum here. Um, again, I, I, we're, we're kind of bleeding into, uh, into, um, application here, but you know, what if, what if they just, you know, said nothing and just said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll make it through this. We, we can push through, uh, you know, one can make the argument that that's just as, uh, just as faithless, uh, just as unbelieving.
0: Well, that comes into what James says in James chapter 4. He Hmm. says there's two wrong ways to pray. Right. Uh, One is you don't pray, you don't ask. And the second one is you ask with wrong motives. Right. And both of those are wrong. Right, yeah.
2: Exodus 17, 8 through the end with Amalek. um, I think it's interesting, the principle that the battle was determined by actually what was happening outside of it. How Joshua, who is leading the battle and the people with him, were actually powerless. Um, In 2 Kings... 13, 14 through 19, as Elisha is dying, the king of Israel comes to him and Elisha tells him to hit some arrows on the ground. And little did the king of Israel recognize, but how many times he hit the arrows on the ground was actually determining many future battles that they would have against their enemies, the Arameans. And because he didn't hit the sticks enough uh, on the ground, um, he would not have the ultimate victory that he could have had if he would have hit them more on the ground. And I think there's there's a principle that's so important that oftentimes the conflicts of our lives, and this can maybe lead us into application, but the battles are determined by little decisions of faith that are seemingly totally disassociated with the conflict itself. You know, like hitting the arrows in Second Kings 13 seems like it has no direct relation at all to the battles that would happen later. And nobody would probably even realize as they were fighting that the battle was actually already determined and Joshua may have had no idea of what was going on with Moses and his weariness. But if Moses would have let down his hands, the battle would have gone, you know, obviously the the Amalekites would have won. And so I just think there's an interesting principle there and an interesting theme.
1: Yeah. We didn't really deal very much with that conflict, I guess, because there's not a lot to be said, like narrative wise about that. But at the same time, it's like, um, is there a significance to holding up the hands? I mean, that, that would be a question.
0: I don't know that there's a significance to it, other than that was something that I think that what Brian was saying is you've got them doing something out of faith that determines the battle. Right. Um, it is an interesting way for them to have a part of it, but it really is a proof that it's not really their own power yes, that does it. Yes, amen, right. I do, I do love that this is the first instance of Joshua appearing. Yeah, yeah. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He is named uh, in the narrative with the assumption the reader already knows who he's talking about. So once again, we talked about this being a context clue. Mm. They knew who Joshua was. Mm-hmm. We knew who Joshua was when we read it. But if this is your first read through, you're like, who now? But this is, right. this is that Joshua. Now, if you're in the nation, you've seen him. He's been Moses right-hand man. we're going to learn some more about him as we go on. Uh, uh, I've said this before, and I say this in all of our Bible classes and um, the Bible classes I teach. Just because the Bible is not fiction does not mean it's not well written. And so what you have here is you have this um, narrative hole. What you have is you, you have a statement being made with no context whatsoever in the way that it's presented. And it is an invitation for you to read on and find out you know what's going on more. And so Joshua being name dropped like this, I, I find it really interesting as the reader, you have to read on to figure out exactly who this Joshua is. You learn about his development. You learn about uh, kind of where he comes from. You learn about him taking over the nation after um, after Moses. But of course, if you're in the nation that came later, you know Joshua as being this great leader who provides a lot of physical success. Now, of course the ultimate application of Joshua being this person to lead them into the land is the fact that Jesus has the same name.
1: obviously, you know, number one, you know, super obvious, you know, do what the Lord says, don't complain against him. Don't murmur. Um, but I mean, obviously there's more to this than that. Right. Um, you know, be, be reliant on him, trust that he will provide. Uh, those are all difficult things I think for people to do in the country that we live in today, Bryant, I I don't know how Mm -hmm. you feel about that. Yeah. I think like one, one application with that
2: sense of assurance and what we're talking about with, you know, greed and covetousness, um, which can lead to discontentment. Um, Romans chapter eight, uh, I think kind of teaches a similar principle. The Lord is our banner, you know, and I think Jesus in the wilderness, when he brought up The the stuff about the manna, you know, that we shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I think the key thing is maintaining a sense of assurance in God's love. And I think that's where the people ultimately failed in their hearts is they lost over and over again, their assurance in God's love. And Romans chapter eight is intended to very powerfully give us that, that idea in a way that's really deeply enforced where it talks about Verse 31 of Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 mentions that God delivered his own son and he'll freely give us all things. Verse 33, God's not trying to accuse us. His work is to justify us. He's not trying to condemn us in verse 34. And Jesus is even interceding for us in verse 34. You know, so I think we we have to recognize that God is on our side and God loves us. And in trials, it's not that God is condemning us or distant from us, the psalmists that we mentioned earlier, they would reflect on the Exodus and the man and all of these things in the water to remind themselves of God's perpetual, unfailing love and that God has given overwhelming evidence of the nature of his love. And so I think one one application is just how important it is to recognize the love of God that's seen in the sacrifice of Christ and how suffering and how trials and how any distress or weakness of vulnerability that we're confronted with is an opportunity that can work for us to more deeply root the love of God more completely into our hearts in ways that deepen our sense of resolve to then be able to serve God with greater passion in other ways outside of the trial that we're facing. Like Jesus in the wilderness, again, he was very vulnerable, very weak, very powerless But as he deepened his resolve to trust in God, the Father, to provide and did not yield to Satan's temptations, then after the temptations, the kingdom then could explode
1: from the seeds that were planted in that time. Maybe this is uh, stretching a little bit, but sometimes it does feel as if God's blessings or God's providence doesn't really seem to last
3: um, mm-hmm. you know there are times that's where we can thought.
1: feel like okay things are going really well and we have to be really careful that we don't just sort of get comfortable in the right. fact that there the thought that things are going well because yeah that mana is not going to last a, uh you know around forever so good no that's a great thought yeah and it just you yep. know that that helps us to be you know kind of steeled in with that that strength to say no we got to press on we got to keep going that's so good. And that, um, yeah, that, that kind of, yeah. I was just going to say it tests the fact of, are we trusting
2: in the blessing? Do we love the blessing or are we mm-hmm. trusting in the blesser and loving the blesser as evidenced by the blessing?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Very good thought for us to, and, and again, it gets back to, do we love the miracle more than the one who provided the miracle? Yeah. You know, right. Uh, right. Uh, Amen. <clears throat> so, yeah, absolutely. And, and then it, it, you know, there, there are so many levels on that as well. I mean, let's say mm. you work with, um, I mean, you know, and Paul, Paul talks about this, I think in first Corinthians three, you, you know, you, you do this work on somebody, you, you, you put that effort into someone and then if it's lost, I mean, you know, it, that that's okay. You know, sort of like, you know, it, you work years on helping someone become a Christian and then in the end they, they fall away. Well, you know, you could look at that as a great loss and it is a great loss in terms of the Lord's kingdom, but mm. it's not a loss toward your work and it doesn't mean that all that time was wasted. Right. Um, and, and so that's why it's important not to tie my feeling of success in the kingdom to the success of someone else. I need to be, you know, rooted and grounded within myself in all this. Yeah. What were some other things you saw, Brian, application wise? Uh, James chapter five. Um, I think
2: Jeremy referenced this earlier. Um, in verse nine, where he says, do not complain brethren against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts, uh, Stephen, when he in the context is talking about patience and suffering, which that's what was going on in Exodus, is they were suffering and weren't patient. Um, I don't know, do you have thoughts on how patience and suffering relates to not complaining against the brethren?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question to ask because I, I think it's easy I think it's easy for us, you know, as as I mean, we think of ourselves as evangelists and and preachers, and mm-hmm. I think it's very easy for us to have uh, grievances with the brethren and to have mm. uh, you know those things that we're working through. And uh, you know, I, this is a lesson for me. I mean, just to be blatantly honest, like I I I have issues with being too negative, and I need to continually think about that and say, okay, am I being uh, am I being an encouragement right now? Uh, mm. there was a preacher that uh that i I greatly appreciate and i I spent some time talking to him once at a after a study and I came out of it you know going home and I realized you know there was nothing positive that I had said to him uh in that whole conversation uh it was just you know completely consumed with my concerns for certain people who are falling away at the time and th- this and that and I'm not saying that there's not a place for that but you know, we need to make sure that, that we're thinking about the positives and not being consumed with the negatives. And that's, mm. that kind of goes back into, you know, what we're seeing here, you know, I, I, you know, the, the church will be perfect if not for the people, don't we say that? And it's just like, mm. well, you know, uh, I need to be careful that that doesn't become my guiding principle, right? <laughs> that's, mm. that's something where maybe like I can see, okay, yeah, that's kind of funny, you know the church will be perfect if not for the people, but the reality is the church is the people, and and the church is God's people, and there's nothing better or greater than that. Uh, you know that the church is the fullness of what God has revealed upon the earth so far. This is the culmination of all His efforts throughout the ages, yeah, and now you know the church is you know what's what's to be carried on and perfected on throughout eternity. So, I, 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 we need to be sure that we're you know that especially those of us who are preachers that we're we're being positive about the work but even as 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 christians as it, with each other we need to be positive about our local work and make sure that we're uh emphasizing those positives and uh not not complaining and whining uh you know whining our way through as uh, as the people of israel did yeah i think that kind of
2: i don't know i feel like that opens up how challenging that is, you know, not, not challenging in a way where it's, you know, at the disregard of, you know, thinking very immediately about it. Um, But I feel like, I feel like there's a lot for me to think about there. And I think of every application that we've ever brought up in walking through the book, I just really feel like the way that that connects to Exodus and how relevant I see that is, especially with what you're saying to me, like I feel like I really want to keep that in my heart. Um, And like, I, I was even thinking like the way that James relates it to suffering. Like, I feel like I can really see like how easy it is to be tested by others, especially others that you expect a lot from or expect compassion from. And when they don't give you, what you're seeking how easy it is to them to then turn and be embittered against them and i think that's like Mm -hmm. the people expected something from god and so they became embittered against god and i feel like maybe that can be the be what leads me to bitterness is i'm expecting something from my brethren and when i don't get it from them then it can be easy to then grumble kind of like the people grumbled against god if maybe that makes sense i don't know
1: yeah I think there's a fine line that we sort of dance on, right, not really dance on, but like <laughs> I mean, there are times when brethren are going to make demands that are not reasonable mm-hmm. um there are times when brethren are going to maybe be harsh when they should be compassionate, uh, yeah right, and right. Then the challenge is like, what do I do with that? How do I react to them? And sometimes it's hard for us to know, like, well, how do I act around this person? Because, you know, know, especially when it's like, you know, maybe there was a good relationship there before. But, you know, that's been impacted by this negative, you know, event or whatever has gone on. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that gracefully? How do you deal with that in the way that's best for them? And how do you deal with that in the way that's best for you? Right, um, and I think I think a lot of those answers can be situational. I don't think there's a one size fits all uh, thing, except you know, love God and love your neighbor. Of course, that you know, that goes along with all of this. Um, again, that we see that being the key. Uh, if they if they had a proper understanding of who God was, and again, you know, there's a statement that, uh, but in Deuteronomy 29 in verse two. Um, now Moses called all Israel and said to them You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt To Pharaoh and to all his servants in all his land The great trials which your eyes have seen The signs and those great wonders Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive And eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day um, And there's an interesting development there and, you know, I, I recently was looking at some of the positive aspects of Revelation 2 and 3 and how you know it goes all the way from Deuteronomy in the sense that you know you weren't given a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear. In Ezekiel 12, verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. So by the time of Ezekiel, they, they had been given everything they needed in their particular context to see and to hear, but they didn't want to because they were rebelling, right? But now in Mark four in Mark four and verse nine, when Jesus delivers the sermon, uh, the the parable of the sower, he ends it and says, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." Now is the time that we're being given everything we need to see and hear completely. And uh, so, so again, we need to we do need to be careful when we look at chapters like this and say, you know, like we we talked about earlier, well, they should have seen this. This should have been obvious to them. Um, I'm not sure it would have been very obvious to us if we were in the same situation. So we need to be careful about that. Um, and we have to ask ourselves like, what is it that we're not seeing that Mm -hmm. we need to see? Yeah. Uh, you know, what is it that, that, that we're not getting, we're not hearing. And sometimes that's harder for us to perceive than it was for them to perceive that this great and, and wondrous mighty work had been done to free them from Egypt.
2: Yeah. And I think that's, that is, I think one of just the ultimate applications. I think Exodus 16 and 17 is one of the first times where we see ludicrous mass disobedience, you know, or like we were saying, we, we look at the text and it's almost like we're invited to scoff at the people. But I think that's really intended to humble mm-hmm. you and me because we share a nature as the same as the people of Israel who came out of Egypt. And I think Jesus would really try to get the disciples to recognize how they were no better than the people that oftentimes they look down on. And so I think like one of the one of the big important applications is recognizing that if if Israel came on coming out of Egypt could fail so laughably, the invitation is ultimately not just to scoff at them, but because of that invitation to scoff at myself ultimately and to see the log in my own eye, which then leads me to then ironically be disassociated from the people of Israel because that was their problem, is they weren't looking within themselves by the guidance of God. They were looking outside of themselves.
1: They're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, and and isn't that the thing with the Pharisees, is they were unwilling to look within themselves, and that was what Jesus was really Mm -hmm. trying to do all along, is see how you are no different than the very sinners that you are scoffing at, And if they would have just accepted that invitation, just how different they could have been.
1: There's a statement that in Revelation 2, verse 17, that I haven't gotten to yet. You know, he who has an ear, talking to the church at Pergamos, uh, the Lord says, he who has, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So... Some of the hidden manna to eat. Um, And there's some things to be considered there. Um, I think one of the main things is that God continues to provide for his people. Um, And that providence is not always easily seen. Oh, that's so Um, good, yeah. You know, the hidden manna... You know, uh, we have so many people in this world that they want these big things. They want right. these big right, 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 displays. Right. I yeah. mean, we, you know, there's a there's a local megachurch that that I mean, you look at their commercials. It's like Cirque du Soleil. I mean, it's it's incredible what they're doing, presentation wise. It's it's a rock concert. It's a huge spectacle. Mm-hmm. And and I think people want the huge spectacle. Right. And even among believers, I think there's the sense that like we've got to have these big things happening. You know, the Christians of the first century were turning the world upside down. We need to be turning the world upside down. Well, and and yeah, mm. I mean I agree with that. But what does that look like? Yeah. How does that actually manifest?
2: Yeah. And right. I would argue right.
1: that it manifests just as clearly with, for example, a small local congregation, just simply consistently doing the work of God day in, day out with love and care. Amen.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, um, we're grateful for you taking the time to be with us today and we hope that it was useful to you and your walk with God. And, uh, we just hope next time to be with you and to, uh, go into chapter 18 of Exodus, maybe beyond that and, uh, share with you more as we walk through the book together. Until then, uh, study well and be last to God's glory. Thank you for being here, Brian.
2: Absolutely, so so grateful for the encouragement that this brings, and I hope brings to others as well.
0: Well, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, I not only appreciate what you guys are doing, but I appreciate the fact that you uh, are working so hard at it. I sure appreciate the uh, the listeners. Wow, thank you, Jeremy. Yeah.
1: Music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.